Welcome to Cosmophonia. I'm Meredith. And I'm Gabe. And today we are talking about Neptune. From Holsts, the planets. Okay, so we decided that we, it was about high time that we tackled Hulse the Planets, but it's a huge work and each of the movements is just so exquisite that it's only fair that we dedicate an entire episode to each one. So, as you would expect, we're starting at the end. Because, why be normal? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I do think it is very important that Neptune comes at the end, and maybe we can talk about why that is later, but Neptune's on my brain right now. I just gave a paper based on part of my dissertation that starts with Neptune a couple months ago, and I'm still working on that chapter, so I don't know. Maybe I'll have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) You got Neptune on the brain. (laughs) This is your brain on Neptune. (laughs) 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 Hmm. Hmm. i wonder what that meme would look like i will let the internet figure that one out okay yeah Uh, we solicit memes (laughs) from our dozens of fans (laughs) (laughs) this is our first social media (laughs) blitz (laughs) (laughs) yes for our 20 followers on twitter Uh Mm -hmm. Mm uh-huh okay we're off to a great start great yeah but we did actually have good reasons for wanting to talk about Neptune first. And I think it's because of all the movements in this piece, it's the one that, I don't know if it's that it has the most, the highest density of musical space markers, Mm. but it certainly has an awful lot of them. And markers that we've talked about on here before markers Mm -hmm. that you know this piece is more than 100 years old and in that time they've become so deeply associated with our sense of space in music Mm. i was reminded when i was listening to it that when we talked about alien we talked about the flutes and in neptune you got flutes oh yeah right neptune gives us the celesta as a sparkly marker of space Mm -hmm. and of course we have wordless treble voices which are a thing that you have a lot of thoughts about (laughs) i do yeah and when i was re-listening to it today i just was thinking about the instrumentation and this very particular timbre world that holst creates like through the celesta and through the the harps Mm -hmm. and the flutes and these like very, very high sustained strings in certain places. It really creates this kind of icy, kind of distant feeling to the piece that I really enjoy. And I was, I mean, maybe this is a tangent, but this week in my class, I'm teaching a music history class. We're in the early 20th century. So right around this time that this piece came out, and we were talking about what what is it about like modern music around that time that makes it have that sound, you know? <laughs> and and I, I always try and get them to be more specific. 
we eventually arrived at that modern composers are very interested in timbre and texture over maybe harmony and melody in certain ways that gives it a particularly modern kind of feel. You keep saying modern. By modern, you mean 100 years ago? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> well, that's a contentious word because people use it to mean as in today, um, but other people use it to mean like the 17th century. <laughs> but I feel like around the early 20th century, especially in art and music, people are like, yeah, we're going to be modern conscientiously. And so that kind of stuck around to refer to art or, uh, from around that time period. Yeah. But yeah, it's very different from what people are doing today. Right. Holst has been dead for many years. <laughs> so please don't think that I don't know that music has <laughs> has continued to be composed since <laughs> since the twenties. Yeah. I don't I think in this piece, in Neptune in particular, there obviously is an interest in timbre. I mean, that's how you get him using some strange instruments like the alto flute, which he refers to as a bass flute, mm-hmm. but also the bass oboe, which is not a thing you hear very often. And also there's like one note that he writes for the pedal of an organ, which is, <laughs> it's spectacular. There's a reason why it's in there. You get this lower, it's a, a me, I haven't done the math. It might be a sub audible pitch that he actually asks for. Mm. But I think the the harmony is still critically important. It's, yes. it's kind of like, instead of using harmony as a direction giving thing the mm-hmm. way it had been done in the centuries before him harmony becomes this kind of object of study almost yeah i was flipping through the score and despite many movements being very much in a key he doesn't use a lot of key signatures ever in the score for this piece and in neptune it's only in the choir and i think that's just to help it be more readable that he puts in some key signatures. Mm. But that's because harmonically this piece is like, it's really not in a key. It's in multiple keys at the same time. I noticed something that I hadn't quite noticed before. It ties to the timbre in a really interesting way. So the harp has these kind of special abilities because you can change every string to be either flat, natural, or sharp. Mm -hmm. And that means that you can set with the pedals of the harp adjacent strings to be the same note if you Mm -hmm. make one flat and one sharp. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the iciness comes from actually taking advantage of that so he can create two two copies of the same chord right next to each other mm-hmm. so you can get lots and and there's two harps so you actually have four people or the equivalent of like four like plucky bits on the harp mm. so there's a really interesting connection between the color that you get from the plucking of the harp and imagining harmony in this way where where it's about the juxtaposition of chords rather than creating music that's in a key yeah that's really interesting and depending on what you're used to listening to it might sound pretty weird but he like explores these two keys or these two chords or these juxtapositions of various sonorities like so thoroughly throughout the piece that it becomes like you become used to it by the end and you're just like yeah 
I I accept this. Right? Yeah. I mean, like you were saying, early 20th century composers, as they were shifting their interests, they realized that they still wanted their music to be intelligible. Mm-hmm. And they had to look for these other models of creating intelligibility. So what we would think of as traditional harmony before the 20th century and in the present, we often refer to as a kind of syntactical harmony, mm-hmm. where the chord progressions make sense in our minds on the basis of culturally defined patterns that we're just really, really used to. And if you abandon that, which Holst does in this piece, it means that you have a contextually defined logic. Mm -hmm. And he kind of owed it to himself and to his audiences to really saturate the score with these particular juxtapositions so that what you just described happens so that as you listen to it you say wow it sounds a little strange in the beginning but the more you listen to it and really some of the strangest moments are at the end but they don't feel jarring or or you know like you're in the world by that point you mm-hmm. get his language yeah i actually read this quote from the conductor in one of the early performances of this piece and he was talking to holst and he looked at a particular chord in the horns that was like I don't remember what it was like an E flat minor and a G flat major on top of each other Mm -hmm. I don't know two chords that don't really go together in tonal harmony and he was like look at that isn't that gonna sound bad and Holst is like well maybe but what are you gonna do about it (laughs) (laughs) good job Holst (laughs) I mean I think so we've talked about these kind of tonal juxtapositions these chords that you know like like that's well well we can define what he's actually doing right the weird thing that he's doing is exactly that it's playing two chords at the same time but he's really crafty about it like you could do that in ways that sound really terrible you could Mm -hmm. find chords that do not go together that's what Stravinsky kind of does especially in the right of spring (laughs) famously and Holst on the other hand some of the juxtapositions are pretty gnarly, but a lot of them are between chords that have at least one note in common, and it sort of tricks you into thinking that they're actually not two chords at the same time, but actually just one really complicated chord. What's really beautiful about the piece, though, is how he segments them, though, in the orchestra, so that if you ignored timbre, right you would hear it as complicated chords but if you account for timbre you can hear how yeah like the horns will have one and the trumpets will have another so your ear actually has some clues that make you want to think or that make you notice that it's two chords at the same time where this can't happen is with the choir though Mm. because even though you have differences in timbre from between sopranos and altos and well between every individual singer and even though it is technically two choirs right it's still all voices so so at the end of the piece when you start hearing the choir these kind of complex bitonal chords end up becoming choir Mm. harmonic soup (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's true it's true but i do think by that time you've been so immersed in this world that it does sound gnarly but it's less gnarly than if you would have started off with that maybe and I really like how you're saying how like how the instrumentation and how the orchestration kind of adds to the maybe not acceptability but the beauty of this kind of atonal language and I think that that's also 
really different from how Stravinsky does it in Rite of Spring because he makes the the rhythm super aggressive and whereas this piece it's all about the flowing right yeah. so it's it's very watery in its texture it's you got your f- meandering flutes you've got your little harp sparklies you've got <laughs> your very low like sustained drones in various sections of the orchestra or arpeggiations that create these like different layers I guess so to me certain parts of it when the texture is very low or the orchestration is very low it really gives you this sense of depth as if you're looking into a very deep ocean or something like that and seeing these little sparklies on the top of the waves but then you see in between the waves this dark depths below which is very Neptune it is very Neptune not that well. <laughs> I necessarily knew that but <laughs> you got it right um and in terms of the flowiness, I mean, the rhythm is important for that, too, because the piece is in a slow five. Mm. So it's always got this kind of asymmetrical one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. Mm-hmm. So it's really got this kind of very steady rocking wave thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's that kind of gentleness and the gentleness of the register partitioning you just described and also with this harmony i mean part of how you feel get accustomed to it is he is also very gentle in introducing the concept Mm -hmm. right because it begins with this little flute solo and at that point they don't play the chords on top of each other they just kind of vacillate right between the kinds of chords that eventually he will stick on top of each other Mm -hmm. so the first sounds that you hear in the piece tell you okay harmonically this is different but they're both triads mm-hmm. right so they're both intelligible and then when they happen on top of each other it's like oh sure why not <laughs> <laughs> I think we've done a pretty thorough job of uh, getting into the musical nuances and details, right? But he calls the thing Neptune the mystic. Mm -hmm. So there's this astrological, uh (laughs) uh-oh, connection that is actually the impetus for the piece. And I'm intrigued by your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. And also, ultimately, one of the most amazing and beautiful coincidences of the whole suite is that all of the movements are astrologically based, yet amazingly, before Holst could have possibly known about any of the science, we've seen all of these movements, or we, I don't know if, well, I don't know, like, somehow it is true that here we live in the future and all of these movements seem relevant to the actual astronomical bodies and their physical natures. Hmm. And I don't know if that's, like, an amazing coincidence or... Or if it's just like we want it to work, so we've decided it works, and we look for <laughs> rationale. Yeah. Uh, but I think in, in Neptune especially, it's kind of amazing that 
it does have some intuitive link to our sense of the planet, I guess. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Like, do you have specific details about that? Well, I mean, so during Hulse's life, Neptune was the farthest known planet. And yeah. also, by the way, our lives. Yes. So, <laughs> so there's that. So there's always a sense with distant astronomical objects that they be mysterious in nature, mm-hmm. right? And Neptune is cold, right? It is mysterious. We know Neptune and Uranus are the least well-studied planets in the solar system. So they remain mysterious, both of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of what's, from an observational perspective, really intriguing about Neptune is that it's fairly featureless on the surface. So it's not that there aren't interesting things going on with Neptune. There are. But it's really hard to observe in any detail and and to really understand the things that could be really cool and exciting about it because it's just really hard to see. Mm -hmm. So it really, to us in our current perspective, it really is a distant, cold, mysterious object. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think that that's necessarily a coincidence because... I mean, astrology has a long, long history, obviously, in many cultures, but that doesn't mean that it hasn't continued to be updated based on, you know, new observations and discoveries about actual astronomy. So it's pretty clear that Holst was inspired by this particular astrological book called The Art of Synthesis by an astrologer named Alan Leo. Um, And I think that book came out in 1912, maybe. Um, So it was very, very recent to when Holst started composing this piece. And uh, this book is really interesting if you look at it, because it does talk about Uranus and Neptune specifically as being the most mysterious planets to us, not only astrologically, but also in their kind of spiritual connotations in his astrological kind of cosmology um, because of course astrology traditionally had been you know formulated many centuries before Uranus and Neptune had been discovered but once they were you know in the late 18th and mid 19th centuries astrologers were trying to think about okay how do these previously unobserved objects which have been there all along how can we fit that into the astrological system. And so Alan Leo is very interesting because his whole astrological system is based on this kind of idea of reincarnation, (laughs) okay? And not only reincarnation of the individual human, but of all of humanity. So as each person becomes reincarnated, all of humanity kind of grows and learns together and progresses through this these different stages that are kind of corresponding to what the planets represent astrologically. So he says that currently we're around, I think, Jupiter or, or Saturn, Jupiter and Saturn. As a species. As a species. And he's like, all right. So the, the thing is, the we- reason why Uranus and Neptune are so mysterious to us is because we haven't gotten there yet, hmm. like spiritually. And so our next step is to try and incorporate these kind of magical playfulnesses of, of Uranus. But eventually we'll get to Neptune and Neptune is where like the union with the mystic, the divine happens, right? So this is like our ultimate spiritual (laughs) goal is Neptune, not only as a species, but also individually. So he says, 
that Neptune is where you go like when you die. (laughs) So your spirit flies away from your body and it hangs out in Neptune for a while. So this is the planet of disembodiment and of disintegration a little bit. And then when you become reincarnated, you go back to Mars. And so this is why why we think that Mars is the first planet in whole suite, because this is the planet of the physical incarnation. Mm. So it does really matter that Neptune comes at the end if we're thinking astrologically. Now, does that really matter to our modern hearing of the piece? I think it just depends on what you're interested in. And even at the, the time that it was premiered, some people looked at that and was like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. And some people were like, astrology come on (laughs) some people are still like astrology (laughs) come on (laughs) that's fine but i i was reading some reviews of the piece and some people were really like man if you want to read the symbolism into it if if that is all you care about in music is looking for symbolism maybe you should look at scriabin's prometheus because that one's like very obviously about musical symbolism and if that's all you care about, you'll dismiss this piece because it's really hard to look at specific details and be like, yeah, this means this. Because I think Holst was really going for the overall impression of it. I don't even know if he's trying to really promote astrology. This is what he was just inspired by. And he had certain moods and emotions and, and ideas that were inspired by reading this book and really getting into astrology and He kind of really got into astrology around this time because he wasn't doing super well as a composer. And he was like, what's going wrong in my life? I need to like figure out my destiny or whatever. And kind of ironically, it worked because then he made this piece, which is by far his most popular piece ever. So. He looked to the stars for guidance. (laughs) Or the planets. Or the planets. (laughs) The planets provided. You know, as an astronomer, I have spent a lot of time in classrooms and (laughs) in the world kind of receiving questions or thoughts relating to astrology and kind of having to, depending on the situation, either pivot it or correct something or like otherwise kind of say, okay, well, sure, that's a thing, except here's also some reality and you know it's not necessarily the only thing that's ever bugged me is when people don't know the difference between astrology and astronomy uh i I, i'm not too judgy about people who are into astrology uh it's hard to knock something that's as old as humanity and i think part of why i'm part of why i think it's acceptable to and, and maybe even responsible to sort of create space in a scientific mind for you know this kind of thinking is that the two are really a lot closer than you'd think, right? Like they're both about, both astronomy and astrology are motivated by a mysteriousness in the universe, right? But also a measurable (laughs) nature to it. Right, right. It's like they both look up and say, whoa, there's some cool stuff up there that I don't fully understand and I want to understand it and I want to understand ultimately how that impacts my life because a lot of astronomers are motivated by or at least claim to be motivated by a sort of like pure curiosity in the objects right but you know if you're a human being you have to acknowledge that that curiosity is itself 
a, ultimately a reflection on on your own being, right? Mm. So you know the fulfillment of that of scientific curiosity is a fulfillment of your own earthly desires in a way. Mm. <laughs> and it's interesting, like people don't like talking about this, but the astronomers of the Renaissance era. Like their main job was doing astrology. Oh yeah, so yeah. like Kepler and Tycho. You know, yeah. yeah, like what they would do is they would write horoscopes for pe- predictions. <laughs> that was for... their that was their day job. Yeah, they did this for fun. <laughs> yeah, the the science they did for fun. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's interesting because they were really. I mean, I, I don't know if actual astrologers would agree with me, but their their day job was doing art, and their hobby was doing science. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to talk about the wordless chorus though well yeah the wordless chorus is a big deal it's a really big deal <laughs> yeah um, my like my favorite thing about it there are two things that I love about it in this piece that are quite unique for the time at least the first one is that the wordless chorus is off stage so if you don't already know that that's going to be part of it, like the people that were at the premiere, I don't know if they knew that this would happen or not, but I like to imagine being in their shoes. And so this piece is like eight minutes long, right? So you're sitting there for like four minutes or so. It's like, all right. Well, eight minutes at the end of At like the end of 40. this whole suite, yeah. <laughs> so you've already heard all these planets with all these instruments and you're like, all right, I know what's happening. Even if the harmonic language and the rhythms kind of unsettling but four minutes in that's when the chorus comes in and they're all in unison on this very very high pitch and it's very eerie sounding like the first time I actually put myself in those shoes and was like yeah I'm just gonna pretend like I'm not expecting this it gave me chills and it still does every time I hear it I just wow it's incredible and it's so strange and it's coming from some unlocatable place. And it's really quite an amazing effect. And it really just injects this air of mystery into the piece. And not only that, but uh, there's a fade out at the end. So all of the instruments drop out except for the chorus is still there. And they're supposed to keep repeating just this one bar alternating to sonorities and they're supposed to get quieter and quieter and even just walk away and shut the door until you can't hear them anymore. And so it's like you don't know when the piece ends because it's like such a gradual fade out. At least it's supposed to be. And it just it adds to the mysterious nature of the piece, too, because it's not this like resounding finish that you might expect in an orchestral suite. It's it's a fade out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love your observation about the unlocatability of them. The I mentioned a few minutes ago that organ pedal. Mm-hmm. So that organ pedal, it happens just a few bars before the first entrance of the choir. It's a very, very low A flat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very low. And then the choir comes in a few bars later on a high G. <laughs> so it's like these are notes that don't go along together. But this unlocatability thing is amazing because, of course, yeah, you're right. Like, you don't see the choir and you don't know where they're coming from. You also don't see organs 
Yeah. Right. Like you maybe maybe you see an organ in front of you, but it's like they're not instruments where you can stare at them and with your eyes alone know whether or not sound is coming out. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think about this as a very special moment and a special juxtaposition, because actually that very, very low A flat would itself be unlocatable. Mm. Right. That's in a part of the audible spectrum where the human brain is very bad at interpreting the direction. This is why, like, if you're an audio person and you have a subwoofer, right, there's all of this stuff about how it kind of doesn't matter where like the placement of a subwoofer (laughs) doesn't matter because the sounds are sufficiently low frequency that they just sort of fill the room or sufficiently large wavelengths. That's another way to think about it. Right. Mm. It's a sound coming out of a pipe that's like 64 feet theoretically um or well or no sorry 32 he calls for but still very very long and (laughs) so it's like there's this unlocatable like physically unlocatable very very low sound that foreshadows the similarly unlocatable very high sounds but through different means wow yeah that's really cool isn't that cool yeah this is good yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think that that unlocatableness adds to the mystic quality of it because you're hearing things that you can't see and there's something about sight that makes things seem more real and more like you know concrete and down to earth but if you're thinking about like spiritual things you know you're not really thinking about something that you can necessarily see or grab onto um, so it's like this call from another world or something. Yeah, well, and there's a lot of excitement in music scholarship circles this is for for the last few years in this phenomenon of acousmatic oh, yeah. sound, right? Things where you can't see the source of the sound, which becomes actually really relevant in contemporary society when we're so focused on recorded music. Mm-hmm. But it also, the way you were describing it, reminds me of older Christian traditions where like mass is performed you don't go to it right and in some cathedrals and churches there's an actual screen separating the lay people from the clergy so that you 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 can't even see the mass you can be in basically the same space but you can't see it being performed yeah yeah and this is especially true of like nuns Mm. i mean this even happened with like girls schools like if you read about vivaldi the girls school that he taught at they would often perform behind a screen but but nuns, like this is very common in convents if you went to see them sing, like you wouldn't see them because that's just improper. <laughs> but you would hear these beautiful voices and I don't know, maybe you would think of angels or something like mm. that. So there's already, as you mentioned, a long history of connecting this kind of unlocatable vocal sound. And it, I mean, especially with the mass, Unless you're super educated, they're probably going to be singing in Latin, so you're not going to know what they're saying anyway. So, I mean, yeah, they're singing words, but to you, maybe it's wordless because yeah. you don't know what they mean. Well, and the wordlessness in this piece is also kind of interesting because it's it, Holst is totally vague about how to actually produce the sound. He just writes notes. Mm-hmm. He doesn't specify a vowel. He doesn't specify if it could be hummed. And there are some details in the writing that actually it's kind of you you almost wish he did say something because there are passages where the singers have to articulate a repeated note. So like it's not just ah, sometimes ah, 
ah, right?、Mm. So you have to kind of think about it. I just did it on ah, but there's no reason why it couldn't be done on oo or a hum or、mm. whatever, or if it could be changed or not changed. So, you know, it's kind of funny because in many recordings, I find it really difficult. I often I try to think about it. I, I find it really difficult to process in my head. Like what vowel the singers are actually using, right? I'll try to interpret it, and it ends up always kind of just registering as this generic, like treble choir sound、mm. that is vowelless. <laughs>、mm. But it can't be, right? They have to be doing something. Mm. Mm. So there's mystery even inside the mystery of the wordless、mm. choir. Oh yeah. <laughs> 